Hello everyone! How are we all doing? Hope everyone's had a nice week. I have to say I am very much looking forward to the weather going a bit nicer next week because when it rains and you're trapped indoors it's pretty miserable. So yeah I'm definitely looking forward to the weather going a bit nicer. One thing that I thought I would just share with you in the spirit of this being a financial podcast is this week I had a look at my bank account. So I bank with Santander who I started banking with, I can't remember now, it was a few years ago, but I joined them because some of you might be familiar with the 123 account. So at the time they gave you 1% cash back on certain things, 2% cash back on other things. Uh, but importantly, they gave you 3% on your savings. And back then that was really market leading. So even if you were to invest your savings or sort of store your savings in a five-year fixed bond, for example, the best you'd get on that was like 1.5, 1.75. So 3% back then was actually market leading. So I moved my banking and all my, my savings over to this 123 account. And then lo and behold, literally about two months after I opened this bloody account, I got a letter off Santander to say, oh, and by the way, we're, we're no longer going to pay 3% on savings. We're going to halve it to 1.5 which was so typical right after I just moved, you know, moved it over there. Um, and also I just felt, well, your marketing's a con then. You're not the 123 account anymore. You're now just the 121.5 account, which does not have the same ring to it. But anyway, at the time I'd, I'd, I'd done the sums, obviously, and for the privilege of getting the 123% cash back, you paid a princely sum of £5 a month. So even though the drop of going from 3% to 1.5% was annoying, even sort of with the 1.5% and tallying everything up and the fee, I was still better off and I was still sort of making more money. So I left it where it was and then that was fine. So it was 1.5% back then. They then since, I can't remember when exactly, but they dropped that down to 1%. And then with everything that's happened recently with coronavirus and with the Bank of England lowering interest rates, some of you might have noticed that if you've got a mortgage and your, your mortgage rate has gone down, but obviously any interest in your savings has now gone down. So Santander sent me another letter a month or so ago to say that the interest rate on savings was going to be going from 1% to 0.6%. So I really had to think about that then. 1% down to 0.6%, which obviously is Jeff all. When they dropped it to, to 1%, I actually moved them into an account um, that was slightly higher than that. So I moved all my savings out anyway. So it suddenly dawned on me that I'm paying this £5 fee and I'm not getting anything back for it because the interest rate at 1% and it's dropping to 0.6, I'm going to get even less. I'm basically giving them £5 a month for nothing. And, you know, I know that's not really life-changing sums of money, but I certainly don't want to be giving Santander £5 just for the privilege of holding on to my cash for me and not actually giving me anything back. Uh, in the interim, I've been on their website and I've now switched from the 123 current account, which is what I was on, to the 123 light account. Um, which is only a £1 fee, so I still get the cash back on my bills, and it's a £1 fee. Now, with that, I'm still probably just about breaking even, I'm not making not making money, um, and so what I think I might do over the next couple of weeks is actually research for a new bank, because there's just no point in me being with Santander, because it's, it's not doing anything for me. Um, so I would just encourage you all to do the same, just double check what account fee are you paying, and what do you get for that, because... I also have uh, another bank account with NatWest that I get, I pay a monthly fee, but for that I get travel insurance, I get mobile phone insurance, I get iPad insurance, which over the 
few years that I've had it, I've claimed on a couple of times. So I've kind of done the sums that the, the monthly fee with that account more than justifies the, the service that I get. And so, yeah, that's it really. It's only a small tip, but I just encourage everybody just to have a quick sense check because if you were paying monthly amounts because you were getting good rates on your, on your savings, that's now more than likely not going to be the case. So, yeah, please let me know how you get on. And also, if you've got any tips for bank accounts that, that, that work for you that you'd maybe, um, maybe recommend that I sign up to, let me know. So on this week's instalment of The Unlikely Accountant, I'm talking to my lovely friend, Kate Walsh, who is a self-confessed non-numbers person, but despite that, has gone on to become the managing director of a global textiles company. At school, I was in the bottom set for maths. I just about got a C in GCSE. I hated maths with a passion. And I was absolutely petrified um, about doing my MBA because I knew I'd have to do finance as one of the modules. And I think that was my biggest worry. I was like, the business stuff, I can kind of get my head around and, and things like that. But actually, the, the finance side, I was petrified of. Let's find out how she conquered her phobias, became an unlikely accountant and rose all the way to the top. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you doing? I'm really good. How are you? How's your lockdown going? Yeah, good. Actually, it's, it's pretty busy. Yeah, keeping, yeah, lot, lots going on. So yeah, keeping very entertained and, and busy. That's yeah. good. And how's it being at home? Because cause your parents normally live in Portugal, don't they? But obviously they, yeah, <laughs> they can't get there. Yeah, they came over to visit at the beginning of March. My, uh, one of my sisters had a baby and uh, they, they got stuck here. So they haven't been back. So we've been living... Um, in lockdown together, it's a, a new experience. Age thirty-five, <laughs> my parents hadn't landed on that one, but um, no, it's great, and we've actually made the most of the time together, and um, really, yeah, had a, had quite a lot of fun as well. Because so, no. I kind of thought, oh, would you be like dying to get rid of them by now? <laughs> but your parents are really good fun, aren't they? They are good fun. They are, but um, yeah, I think it's been quite a long time now. I think we're all ready to get back to normality, and they're they're desperate to get back to Portugal as soon as they can. <laughs> yeah, well, not least just for the for the warmer climes. <laughs> Although we've been incredibly lucky with the weather here, that's made um, a huge difference, I think, to everybody in lockdown. So I agree. I think um, so. I'm definitely. I've got. A, a, I'm a few uh, shades darker than I was. That's that's for sure. <laughs> Always good. Always good. <laughs> Well, look, thank you so much for uh, finding the time to join me on The Unlikely Accountant, because I know how busy you are. Um, but I was just really excited to get you on here to, well, I wanted everybody to kind of hear your career story, because I just, I find it fascinating. So, because nowadays, I think you tend to move around a bit in your career and uh, people um, jump ship with organisations. But you're one of those rare people where you've joined an organisation and you've basically never left. <laughs> But not only have you never left, you are you are now in charge of the managing director and a shareholder. So you are running the place. But what's interesting is that you are a you're a self-confessed non-numbers person. That's right, isn't Absolutely. it? Yeah. Yeah. So you were yes, maths and, and, and whatnot at school was sort of definitely not your not your forte. But I'm sure that overcoming your fear with numbers is something that you've had to face into in order to essentially rise to the top of this organisation because you can't be in charge without having an understanding of how numbers and finance finance works, can you? 
absolutely yeah it's been an interesting interesting ride (laughs) yeah fair so before we kind of yeah dive into the nuts and bolts of how you've made it to head honcho yeah just tell the listeners a bit about yourself help them help them get to know you yeah okay well I guess uh, going back to the fact that yeah at school I wasn't particularly um academic I absolutely loved sport that was my main focus loved sport and um and creativity as well. I loved textiles, I loved art. And um, yeah, I was incredibly lucky to have a great textile teacher at, at school um, when I did my A-levels and kind of decided that that was a, the route I wanted to go down. Um, and I ended up going to Manchester Metropolitan University to study textile design, um, specializing in woven textiles. Um, and I guess, yeah, it all kind of, my passion for textiles kind of started there um, and I learned so much. It was a phenomenal um, course, actually. It was in the heart of the industry. Textiles has always been kind of based up in the, in the north of the UK. Um, so yeah, the, the course was fantastic. Um, and from there, I had a great opportunity to study abroad. I won a scholarship to study in Hong Kong. So I spent a year out there and um, had an opportunity to do a, an internship in China as well. So gained so much experience um, and hands-on experience um, from, from that, that university experience. Um, but never, no, never expected to kind of then go into a business where I was having to deal with numbers and things like that. That's amazing. I'd forgotten about the, the Hong Kong and, and China uh, episode of, of going there. So was that kind of, did you take a year out of uni to do that? Or was that part of your degree? It was actually part of the degree. So I was incredibly lucky um, to be selected um, along with one other student um, to go and spend a, a six month uh, period. Well, actually it was meant to be a, a three month period and it was so, so great. I managed to convince the university to let me stay out longer. Oh, well done. Learning there. the powers of uh, persuasion and negotiation. Uh, in uni. Well, done. <laughs> well it, was, um, it was just a great life experience actually. And I think that goes back to you know, not necessarily being academic at school, but learning from um, all different walks of life. And I met some really interesting people there that um, I learned a lot from Mm -hmm. and was able to get an internship. Um, Basically, I didn't want to leave. And the only way I could stay was to um, earn a bit more money and and not have to go back and get a job in in, um, the UK over the summer before I went back to finish my final year. So I managed to get a job in China, that was the only one that paid me enough to to actually afford to stay out there. But I hadn't taken in consideration the two-hour commute from Hong Kong to China every day and crossing borders back and forth. But that in itself was a great opportunity and experience. And again, I learned a lot from just being in that working environment. Going, you know, to Hong Kong and China is such a cultural shift as well with all, you know, the, the language differences and the cuisine and everything. That's quite a bold thing to do at, at that age, actually. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, being able to experience education in a different country and working experience in a different country was incredibly valuable for kind of kind of kickstarting my career, really. And that gave me the confidence and I was able to kind of see business from a different perspective, education from a different perspective. Um, And I was on an exchange program with people from over 100 different countries. So, um, wow. I, yeah, I have great friends still from those times. So. Well, you are, you are so sociable and you keep, you like me, you keep in touch with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's so true because Chinese do business very differently, don't they, to sort of the, the Western world. Yeah. And so yeah. that's great that you, you probably didn't realise how valuable that was at that point in time that you were able to experience that. Absolutely. And I think it's only when you kind of reflect now and just the small kind of cultural things that you pick up in terms of etiquette and cultural welcomings and things like that like you you do pick it up without Mm -hmm. realizing and um that that again was yeah really valuable 
Um, Amazing. Yeah, I came back from Hong Kong and then finished my degree um, in textiles. And again, I was lucky enough to be selected um, to exhibit in a, a, a national exhibition um, called New Designers. And it's for young graduates to kind of put their work um, to industry. And uh, from there, I was um, spotted by Emma and Harriet, who are my current bosses. And they invited me to come and do a two-week internship at Wallasaw. <laughs> and I love this because this is where the story begins. Because that was it—they yeah. invited you for this two-week inter. And had you heard of Wallasaw before? Before yes. the new designers, I, you had, I had um, come across their work and studied. So um, I had actually applied to do an internship with them just before. So I think it all kind of um, fell into place. They had recognized my um, work from my CV and my um, portfolio and, and stopped and chatted to me and kind of it went from there really. Amazing so they invite you along for this for this two-week internship <laughs> um, which was how many years ago now? Can you remember? Um, it's coming up to 13 years ago so. <laughs> so yeah so 13 years ago they're like hey come and join us for two weeks so then how do you go through how do you go from that to the MD? <laughs> well again I think um, timing definitely worked in my favor. I was a young graduate. Um, again, I was fortunate that my parents at the time were living on the outskirts of uh, London. So I could commute in to London and I had somewhere to live. I was able to move back and live with them. So financially, I didn't have to pay rent or anything like that. I was able to take the opportunity of um, an internship, which is often the way, especially in the creative industry. Um, it's not known for having great great finances or great wages or anything like that but I was able to take that opportunity because of the circumstances that I was in um so I was able to commute it was about an hour and a half each way oh that's nothing um, compared from Hong Kong to China yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I think at the time I was getting paid 10 pounds a day and my commute was about 15 pound a day so <laughs> <laughs> I, I oh, the gosh. only way I could have done it was was with you know Staying, staying at my parents and, and being able to commute. So that was definitely um, something that helped. Mm. Um, but I loved it. I was learning so much. It was a small company. I was really kind of thrown into the deep end. Um, when you joined, how many, how many members of staff did they have? At the time, it was literally um, the, two, the two founders and directors and um, a studio manager, one studio manager. So um, I was the intern. I actually started the same day as the new studio manager. And I remember being really gutted because if I'd known about the job, I would have applied for it. <laughs> in the end, it actually worked out in my favor that they kept asking me to come back um, for a bit longer. Oh, can you stay a bit longer? And I had no job to go to. I was able to carry on. They were great. They actually helped me prepare for interviews during this time for other, other companies. Um, I think I had a, yeah, a couple of interviews which obviously weren't successful, but... Um, I think it got to the Christmas time. So after about three months of me just going back and forth, this, the, the current studio manager decided it wasn't for her, the role. So she left and then they asked me to apply for the position. And yeah, I think it kind of went from there. So I became the studio manager. Because I'm not really au fait with the sort of the textiles and design world. So what's the, what's sort of the role, what's the role of an intern and what's the role of a studio manager? So just a little bit of a, an overview of, of the business. It's a, it's a woven textile design company. We um, design and manufacture um, textiles um, products. So uh, bed throws, cushions, scarves, things like that. Um, and we design and manufacture them in the UK. So we design them in our studio in London and then we manufacture them up in Lancashire. 
globally to kind of stores all around the world. So we, at that point, we were we were cutting and labeling and packaging all the orders ourselves from there. So as an intern, that was something that I was very much doing. In terms of the studio manager role, there's a little bit more kind of office admin there. So that was probably my first experience having to do invoicing and managing Excel spreadsheets and things like that. And just being organized really and making sure that the studio runs um, as efficiently as possible. And how, how did you find that? Did you think, oh gosh, Excel, I'm not, this is not my cup of tea. Can you remember that far back? Can you remember how you felt? Yeah, I think, funny enough, I, I was a little bit daunted by that because it wasn't something I'd have, ever had much experience with. But I think as a, as a personality trait, and I think a lot of textile weavers fit into this box, that um, weaving is very specific. It's very um, mathematical in itself without realising. Um, it's very detailed and... Um, essentially I like putting I'm very organized I like putting things in boxes so actually Excel kind of sat well with me I quite enjoyed it I liked organizing oh, I'm glad you said that because that's I mean that's all Excel is you just kind of putting things in the right box and Excel does all the hard work is what I always say <laughs> so obviously you got the studio manager job and then yeah and then sort of what happened from, from there because Wallace Yule are in Liberty you're you're kind of in some high profile places aren't you in terms of the merchandise yeah well it's, a, it's a definitely a niche market it's a small industry but we're kind of um high-end tech bars, um and a lot of the work that we do is um very specific it's very um it's very colorful it's very um inspired by art so we work a lot with um galleries like the Tate Gallery British Museum places like that where they will um, commission us to do designs specifically for an exhibition. So we'll, they'll tell us what paintings are going to be in the exhibition and we'll create merchandise inspired by those paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then along with our normal collection that we then sell to other stores. So it is, it's quite a, a niche market, but um, we've got quite a, a great, a, quite a good global reach um, considering how small we are. Yeah, yeah, no, and especially having the whole made in the UK sort of USP. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, been something that's been really beneficial for the company. I think um, people really appreciate that. And actually, um, we probably are more recognised outside of the UK. We actually export more than we sell in the UK. And I think that is because the UK has such a great um, reputation for good quality. Mm-hmm. So we sell an awful lot in the US, um, across Europe, Germany, um, Australia, Japan, um, where I think they really appreciate that high quality product. Yeah, like that kind of UK provenance, you know, like you said, with all the history in the north of England of being famous for, for textiles and still kind of holding true to those those roots. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So you were, so you were studio manager, and then how did you get well, from there to, to MD? Yeah, well, it kind of escalated pretty quickly. Um, you know, within a week of getting the job of a studio manager, they were like, oh, well, next week we're going to New York to do a trade show, and we need you to come with us, and and take that and I think I just really enjoyed the the trade show aspect of it you know meeting the clients selling the product really getting a full um idea of how the business worked um and I really really enjoyed that side and I guess as a quick overview that kind of interest continued so I'd come back and ask I was really inquisitive I'd ask lots of questions I'd be like why aren't we selling in this country and why aren't we here and they're like oh well you know it had only been them two really for a very long time and they were very busy doing the designing and, and that was where their focus was they didn't have the time or resources to potentially develop the business so they gave me an awful lot of freedom to um, feed that curiosity and, and look at different trade shows look at different countries to export to so we developed and started kind of going to Paris and doing a trade show there and Maison Auberger which is a, a really 
important um, interior design show for, for the industry um, where we were able to gather more orders and things like that. So um, yeah, Paris, we went to Berlin and Milan and really kind of started um, the business development side of stuff. So at that point I became a business development manager. Um, mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, the, the workload had really grown. So the, t the team started to, to grow as well there. We employed a few more people to help out. Um, and yeah, it kind of just went from, from there slowly. And it, it was over a long period of time. It didn't, it didn't happen quickly. It was a lot of hard, hard work from everyone within the team. And then, yeah, after business development manager, I think about six years in, they um, asked me to be bus uh, managing director. And I think it was a mixture of keeping me engaged, absolutely. Um, but also it was, it, it was quite reactive really. It was more because I was doing that role and I was really, um, I had an awful lot of responsibility and that there was a lot of trust there from my, my, my managers or my bosses. Um, but it was quite difficult managing the role with the studio manager title or the business development manager title. I, I didn't actually get much respect from people that I was working with. And often I would give an answer or, um, uh, yeah, I'd give an answer and they wouldn't necessarily take my answer. They're like, oh, well, can I speak to a director or can I speak to someone higher than you to get that authorization where I would go to my bosses and they're like, no, no, you can decide. It's up to you. Um, so in a way, having that title really gave me the validation to do the job that I was doing um, mm -hmm. and to stop other people um, questioning my ability, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because job titles is one of those things I was convinced myself I'm not that bothered about, but actually it can make a big difference. And like you say, when you're talking to potential uh, customers or, or suppliers and they want to feel like they're dealing with the decision maker, if, all they're going, if, if they assume from your job title that that's not you, that kind of disempowers you a little bit because you're like, no, I am the decision maker. Take it from me. Yeah. And I think in a way it actually made my job easier having that title. I don't think, yeah, I, I wasn't particularly bothered about titles or within our company, none of us were particularly bothered about titles, but it actually, it did make it my job easier um again for people to accept that i was the decision maker yeah and it's interesting isn't it because obviously you said your your background was textiles that was your degree you went uh, went to a textiles company as an intern but then you've kind of almost fallen in to the business side did that kind of take you by surprise absolutely i never expected to be doing that job um and i never thought i'd find it interesting actually so i think yeah having that natural uh, inquisitiveness and and also competitiveness i think having been a sportswoman um in my younger years um i've always been quite competitive and i like to see you know every year making more profit and that kind of thing i, I really enjoyed that aspect of it um but it definitely did get to a point where i think i had learned as much as i could on the job and mm -hmm. i wasn't able to learn from any more kind of experiences around me i'd pulled from all my resources and i needed to learn more i needed to um even for myself, I needed that confidence, that validation that I had um, got some business experience. I think um, it was incredibly valuable what I'd learned along the way, but I did want to know that what I had learned was correct and, mm. and you know, maybe doing a course or something would help. And I did ask my bosses if they would be interested in me doing a, a, a business course. And uh, they were, yeah, they were really, um up for me doing that they were like yep go away do some research come back and see you know let us know what you're thinking um and i genuinely think they thought i was well i think at the time i did think it would be you know an evening course um you know a short evening course get a bit of business knowledge and then when i was doing my research i just thought oh god if i'm gonna do it i might as well do it properly and um came back and asked if they would support me through um doing an mba 
Mm. And uh, after quite a lot of negotiation, um, they did agree to fund me through that. Um, and that was, yeah, incredibly tough two years, actually. It was a part-time course I did at Westminster University alongside working full-time. So mm. I would work Monday to Thursday in the office and then Fridays and Saturdays I'd be at university all day and then Sundays usually doing the work. Um, but it was, yeah, it was very full on. I'd have to get to work. I'd get to work about 7.30. I'd work for two hours before then starting work. Mm. I'd finish at 5.30 and then I'd get on the bus and head down to Westminster University and work from kind of 6 p.m. often till 11 o'clock midnight um, and then start it all again. So it was, it was a very full on two years, but um, incredibly valuable. And I, I learned a lot from doing that course. Mm. No, I mean, I, I, think, I think you're right. And that was probably a really sensible thing to do. Cause I think that the great thing about being in, in a small business like you've been is that you, you grow with the business and yeah, you just learn so much on the job because everything about that business you know falls to you when, when you're in a bigger business and there's different there's a finance team and a marketing team and an IT team and a, a buy team and, and so on and so forth everyone's got their own roles and in a smaller business you're responsible for everything and it's great that you learn as you go but yeah like you say sometimes you want to check well this is this is how Wallace Sewell do it and that's all I know because I've only ever worked at Wallace Sewell so actually is Absolutely. there a yeah is, is there a different way that we could be looking at it and so yeah such a valuable thing for you to do and also that the networking on MBAs is amazing isn't it in terms of who you meet yeah I mean the 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 mixture of people that I was studying with had gone from you know um surgeons from the NHS to lawyers um accountants um I was definitely the only person from a creative industry but it was really really interesting the mix of people different different demographics in terms of like it's a very international course um but I, I loved it because it was again going back to learning on the job I think it's really important and I'm a big advocate for um, apprenticeships and things like that and I particularly chose this course because it was very hands-on we worked um, very closely with other companies and did live briefs and things like that it wasn't so much sitting in a lecture theatre and writing notes in the back of the class which I would have really struggled with um, but because we were, we were doing live projects for real businesses it was much easier to kind of put those numbers into perspective and and see the real value of why you're doing what you're doing yeah that, that makes such a big difference when you can see how the theory applies to real life because I think sometimes I was chatting to a friend of mine um about you know this kind of podcast and the idea of you know money and finance and maths in general going all the way back to school when when you sort of learn maths for the sake of it it's just abstract and you're just like I don't know why I would ever need to know that and you, and therefore you don't engage with the you don't, yeah, you don't engage with the theory because you don't know why you're ever going to need it. Whereas when you're learning the theoretical side and you can think, oh yeah, this applies at work, you know, in this scenario, it just brings it to life, doesn't it? 100%. I think that was something that I definitely experienced. At school, I was in the bottom set for maths. I just about got a C in GCSE. I hated maths with a passion. Um, and I was absolutely petrified um, about doing my MBA because I knew I'd have to do finance as one of the modules. And I think that was my biggest worry. I was like, the business stuff, I can kind of get my head around and, and things like that. But actually the, the finance side, I was petrified of. But it was really interesting going back to education as an adult and having had, I think at that point, I'd had eight years of experience within the, the industry. And you're able to put it into perspective so much easier um, and you can relate it to to day to day um, jobs and, and things like that. So that's incredibly valuable. And I think, first of all, I had a fantastic teacher at um, 
my MBA and he was incredibly patient with me and he knew that I was worried about this. And he, if, if you, at school, if you don't necessarily learn the way that you're taught, um, they don't often teach you a different way. You're just, you know, I would, for me, I'd be like, oh, I'm stupid, I don't get it. But there are many different ways of learning something. And I think um, this particular teacher at my MBA knew that and he could see that I wasn't getting it that way. And he taught me another way. And again, I think he knew I, I did sport and he said, oh, don't move about the numbers. Maths is a routine, you know, learn step one, step two, step three. And I was like, oh, I did dance. I can do that. Like step one is this. And it just clicked. He found a way to click with me. Um, and I ended up getting a distinction in my exam and I, I was blown away. I think everyone that knew me was just as surprised. Um, <laughs> definitely gave me that confidence to, yeah, just believe in yourself and have that patience and yeah. give yourself the time to learn. If you're, if you're not doing it that way, learn a different way. Yeah. And like you say, just because you didn't like maths at school, it doesn't mean you're not a numbers person and you've clearly proved that and you have the piece of paper to show for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the business, is, is there an FD or, or, you know, a finance person? We, we do have a, a bookkeeper and um, a freelance um, accountant company that does do the nitty gritty. But I think that the, the great thing with the MBA is actually it teaches you to be able to have an overview. So I now, I don't have to do the day-to-day -day accounting. Um, they do that, but they can put a PL in front of me and I can understand it. Um, I can spot if there's mistakes. I can know if there's anything going wrong. Um, and I just have a better sense of our ins and outs and budgeting. I do have you know, a big input and all of that kind of stuff. So it definitely um, gave me a better overview of how it all worked and an understanding. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have to do the day-to-day yeah. the -day accounting. <laughs> Me neither, thank God. I, I learned the theory and I'm like, I never want to see this ever again. I've never been a, yeah, a techie, yeah. techie accountant. Um, but it's important because when you are the MD, you know, the, the book stops with you. So it, it wouldn't just be acceptable if, there, if, if ever there was a big hole in the P&L for you to turn around and say, well, I'm not a numbers person, so that's not my responsibility. Yeah, and I, you know, I have enough of an understanding now to be able to read it, understand it and see if there are mistakes and things that don't tally up. And having being aware of the day-to-day, -day, it's easier to notice if something is out of line. You say, oh, I don't remember spending that much on that exhibition or whatever it is. Mm. Um, so no, it's, it's very valuable. Yeah, and also numbers come in, you know, numbers, mass, it all gets grouped together, but it comes in, in many forms. Because for example, I'm sure you're very au fait with, when you're negotiating with suppliers and potential customers, you know, in terms of cost prices and margins and all that sort of stuff, I'm sure, you know you'll have to have a complete handle on all of that so that you know if you're getting a good deal or not of course of course and uh, you know i think in our industry it's it's always been um known that suppliers are always pushed and pushed and pushed by price the step the shops always want you know to make the biggest margin and i think it took us a long time but we we got to a point where like you know we're not actually making enough money it's not worth us giving that discount and i think being able to after a while having um a position with the industry you can say no actually it's not worth me doing that or taking that project because i'm not making enough money so it is really really important to be um aware of those margins and make sure that you're not being pushed too much no definitely and it's, it's having worked it in industry for a long time now it's easy to get carried away with just giving people discounts and being so fixated on the sale that if you're not keeping that sense check on well hang on just a sec after we've delivered this and all the rest of it, are we actually still making some money? Because we're on the business of that. <laughs> yeah, very, very important. And, it, and mm. without checking, it can easily kind of slip away. So you do really need to keep a check on that, definitely. So you, so obviously, like we said at the start, you've been there for a long time. So how did you end up becoming a, a shareholder? 
So that was probably um, slightly further earlier on when I was doing more of the business development side of things. Um, you know, I was bringing a lot of uh, business into the company and I think um, the, the, the team wanted to, to kind of reward me for that. Um, textiles is, is a notoriously not necessarily a well-paid industry and as a small company it was very difficult for them to give me a big pay rise or a big salary um, because that has a detrimental effect on the, the overall cash flow of the business and things like that whereas the share side of things was great because they were able to give me a, a little bit of the company and um, keep me engaged and I felt like it was I had a real part of it and at the end of the day if we made profit I got a share of that or a cut of that and I think um, it was really clever on their part um, and it definitely is a huge part of why I think I've, I've stayed so long because I, I really felt part of, of the company and that all the work and, and hard work that I was doing I was being rewarded for. Yeah it completely aligns your objectives with theirs doesn't it then you've got you know you then have a vested interest because I was going to say did you over that time ever think about jumping ship and, and going somewhere else to a different company? Oh, many, many a times. And, I, you know, I did have open conversations with them. Um, I think in my head, I'd only ever was going to work there for a year. I was like, oh, it's a great experience. I'll, you know, get a year under my belt. And I was obsessed with traveling. I wanted to go and travel the world. I'd, I'd done a bit of time in Hong Kong and I was keen to go and do the, you know, the backpacking thing after university. But I got this opportunity as an intern. I was like, oh, it's too good. I'll, I'll do this for a year and then I'll go. And I think three or four years down the line, I, I think I spoke to them and I said, oh, I really want to go off and work for a bigger company, work abroad and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's when the conversation started and they were like, well, is it that you want to leave and work for a bigger company or is it that you want to, if you, you know, if you could, would you stay and grow with us? And I was like, well, if, you know, if I felt that I was part of it, I would absolutely stay and grow. So it was all from a conversation really. Um, mm -hmm. And again, down the line, I think I'd got to a point where I didn't feel like I was learning en enough um i'd learned and again i think i mentioned it before pulled from all the resources that i had and that was when we had a conversation i said that i feel like i've either got to go and work somewhere else work for a bigger company or um go back to university and, and, and learn more and that's when we then discussed um doing the mba so mm -hmm. i think it's always been an open conversation um i do every kind of a couple of years i i think about what am I learning? Am I bored? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to leave the company. I love it. I'm really passionate about, about it. And it is a fantastic company to work for. But I think having that open conversation allows you to, to explore different opportunities as well. Because you've also just reminded me that um, you did remote year uh, whilst, whilst working here. So for the listeners that might never, might never have heard of, of remote year, can you just explain what it is? So remote year is a fantastic com uh, concept. It's um, a company that allow you to um, work remotely. They select a certain amount of people. So I think there was 50 people in our group um, from all over the world. We met in Buenos Aires in um, December 2017. And from then we moved each month um, to a different city and worked. So the concept is you can work in 12 cities in 12 months. Um, while working so if you've got a job that you can work remotely you can apply so there was a mixture of freelancers there's a mixture of people that run their own businesses and a mixture of people like myself working for a company but the company had allowed me to work remotely so the great thing is that you can you pay remote year a rent and they organize your travel between cities they organize your accommodation in each city and they give you a co-working a space in a co-working office so the idea is that you spend you focus your time on monday to friday nine to five or whatever your routine is you get your work done and then evenings and weekends you can explore the cities that you're living in 
um, and other cities if you have the opportunity to travel as well. So it's a great concept. Again, after I think I'd been with the company about 10 years at that point, and I still hadn't done my gap year. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why I think it's so great because you mentioned that you wanted to maybe work at a bigger company so that you got the option to travel. And I remember when I joined the world of work, I joined a global organization because I wanted to work in New York. That was kind of, I didn't want to be an accountant. I I just, I wanted to be able to travel. And I thought if I joined this, mm. uh, or what's known as the big four accountancy firms, um, and I joined in corporate finance, and I thought, well, for me, that's 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 easy. They've got an office in New York, so I'll join. And then at some point further down the line, I'll, I'll go there. And that didn't end up happening for me because I only worked there for four years. But then funnily enough, the company that I'm at now opened an office in New York and I then got to go and work in New York via them. So it's like my, my dream happened, just not in the way I expected. And that's what I like about, about remote year with you, that you wanted, you know, you probably wanted to do a gap year and you didn't. You then wanted to join a bigger company to work globally and didn't. But then you ended up being able to do it via Wallace Sewell anyway. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to being open and honest about those conversations. And I didn't want to necessarily leave, but I wanted to travel. I wanted that opportunity. We, we discussed um, when I finished my MBA, could I take three to six months out as a sabbatical? Um, and they really didn't like that idea. They were like, no, we, you know, we really need you here. We don't want you. And at that point, I was still very much involved in the day to day. And the team was a lot smaller and things like that. And um, they really didn't want me to go away. And um, I ap appreciated that, but I kind of took that as a, okay, well, if I can't do it that way, how else can I approach it? And then I came across remote year and I was like, ah, I think I have a compromise here. Yeah. <laughs> Back to them and I said, um, you know, I think I found a way that this could work for both of us. I don't have to leave. I can still work full time for you. You just have to trust me that I can do that work and that I can work remotely. I can tick the travel bug that I, I want, but I, I can still be 100% focused on working for you. And I think because I still was doing an element of um, the business development side of things and we do sell all over the world, I was able to pitch it in a way that I could do some business on the ground business development in the countries that I was going to and bring back some new business and things like that. So I think they really liked that aspect of it. And I think secondly, it got to a point where the company had grown quite a lot and we had a fantastic, well, we still have a fantastic team of people. Um, and I think their confidence within the team had really grown and they were like, okay, we can, we, she can go. Like that's, that's great. Um, we've got all, all bases covered. We've got a really strong team. And I think without that, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I think um, having that opportunity to, I kind of pitched it in another way that I, they'd invested in me in the MBA. And I didn't want to come back into the office and just get stuck into the day to day and get pulled back into the rat race. Um, I wanted to actually put this new knowledge into practice. And kind of stepping away from the office was actually a really, really inviting aspect for me I wanted to step away I was getting I wanted to see something else and so being able to kind of work remotely and have that freedom and, and time and space to think about right where's the business going what what is our plan what, what is our goal for the future um remote year really kind of allowed me that time to you know analyze what's working what's not working where do we want to go in terms of strategy so I was able to use that time to put in a strategy for the business and um, for future yeah it's like like a year long away day because you, you know when you have away days at work is you, you do that to get out the office because when you're in the office you just you can't have that blue sky thinking because yeah. you just you get dragged into the day job and this that and the other so being able to just literally be away and on the other side of the world and just think okay where, 
where can we take this business and, and, and get some inspiration from the same way that you did when you were back in, in, in China and observing the way things are done, you know, being on the ground and seeing how different companies operate and thinking, oh, there's a, there's a gap in the market there. There's an opportunity here. Yeah. yeah and like I think that. another, you know, one of the most valuable parts of remote year for me personally was the cohort of people that I was traveling with. They were all working in different industries and all, like I said, from different countries, um, different nationalities. We had, such an interesting group of people. I learned so much from them, you know, bottle of wine in the evening, chatting, putting the world to right. Like I learned so much from that, that, that part of life is, is really, really important as well. And having those interesting conversations with different people, I think really added um, to that experience. Yeah, amazing. Well, I mean, just good for you for, you know, working hard and yeah, just continuing to learn and making the opportunity work for you, but also work commercially for them, you know, because they, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have let you do that if they didn't believe in you and believe that you could generate a genuine opportunity from it. Yeah, I think it was definitely um, both ways. They they did a lot for me and I've done a lot for them. So I think mm. it definitely was a collaboration. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, you are you are so interesting and an, an inspiration <laughs> to anybody that wants to master their fears with money and, and push ahead and rise to the, the, the senior level. So well done you. So just before we go, if there were three things that you could leave the listeners with in terms of how to how to rise to the top to get the most out of their career, based on your experience, what would they be? I think one one bit of advice I would give is, is you know, don't be afraid to ask those difficult questions. It kind of leads on to my, my second one, which would be like, know your worth, know, know your value. You know, if you work hard, you put a, an argument, a fair argument forward, it, it'd be difficult for the employer to kind of say no. And yeah, know, know your worth, I think, um, is, is really important. Definitely rele- relevant to me is um, always question your comfort zone. Um, if you're gliding along and you're, you're not really learning in a personal way or a career, career way, question that and, and just think, you know, just yeah, question if you're still learning, I think it's really, really important to be putting yourself in those environments where mm. you're being exposed to new things constantly and uh, continuing to learn, I think is, is really, really key. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, I, co- I completely agree with that. I always think there's there's a learning opportunity in everything. And I love a phrase and a favorite phrase of mine is only boring people get bored. So if you are bored at work, it's your fault. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know don't get bored ask for more you know ask things ask, ask questions about things that you don't even think you're interested in just just to learn because there is genuinely a learning opportunity in most things I would say definitely definitely mm-hmm. um always yeah I think always be open to opportunity is is a, a key one as well don't mm-hmm. disregard it without um giving it a go yeah definitely Kay, thank you so much for joining me. That was all interesting. I mean, we had 13 years to to squish into 40 minutes, so you actually done a really good job. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Speak to you soon. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed that episode, please make sure you hit subscribe. That seems to be what all the other podcasters ask people to do. And also, please do give me a follow on Instagram. I'm on at the unlikely accountant. So you can send me any DMs with any thoughts or feedback. Only if it's complimentary, of course. Thanks.